Let me give you a, a few words of, of review and introduction. We'll pray, and then we will uh, get going. We don't actually have a specific text for this morning. All of 1 Corinthians, in essence, is going to be uh, in our purview here today, although we obviously won't get to that much. Um, we are now in the final sermon in our series, Christ and Him Crucified. Uh, this is the fifth now uh, of the series and final. Uh, we took that title, the banner that's been flying over this whole thing from 1 Corinthians 2.2, where Paul says, you know, I determined, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And in the first three messages of this series, it was my aim to, to focus in and show why we need to be a Christ-centered, a cross-centered church. The first three messages, just driving in the centrality of the cross, the conquest of the cross, the calling of the cross. And now, last week and today, we're going to be looking at the community of the cross. There's something my, um, my professor back at Westminster actually used to say, and that is that all theology is practical theology, meaning... What you believe, what you confess about God should affect, does affect how you live, who you are, right? So it affects all of life. So how this works out in this series and the aim that's actually on the top of your handout for this entire series is that I have wanted us to be a cross-centered church so that we would more and more have a culture in this church that is patterned after the cross. A culture that looks like the cross. A cross culture. We have the theology and now it's finding its way into our lives. We don't just proclaim the cross with our lips. We portray it with our lives. The cross-centered church is to be the cross-cultured church. I defended this last week from 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 13. You don't have to turn there. But we were asking the question, what does union with the resurrected and triumphant Christ look like? So he, has, he is victorious. He is raised from the dead. How does that manifest itself in my life? If I'm united to him, what does that mean here and now? 21st century San Jose. We looked at the Corinthians and their concept of the already. That they thought they had already become kings, right? They had, in essence, drawn back the heaven, the new heavens and earth and set up their thrones here and now. They said, you know what? We think Christ suffered, so we don't have to. He was lamb, so we get to be lion. He was poor, so we get to be rich. He was servant and slave, so we get to be king. But we noticed that critical to all of this is discerning the times where we actually are located in God's plan in redemptive history. Because we saw that while Christ has already gone into glory and is seated on the throne, he has 
not yet, turned over everything, taken out the last enemy, put it under his feet, and established, reverted the world, put it right side up. And so what this means for us is that union with the resurrected Christ when his spirit comes back to us from that throne, from glory, it enters into a fallen, a flipped world. A world that's still groaning for its redemption, Romans 8. A world that sees true wisdom as foolishness. True power as weakness. An inverted and upside down world. And therefore, when resurrection life enters into this context, it gives us the power to be conformed to his crucifixion death. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. His spirit enables us to do that. Which is why you look, you say, yeah, he was lamb, so I get to be lion? No, I'm sorry. Romans 8 says, we are like lambs led to the slaughter, and his resurrection life gets us through it. All this to say, the cross-centered church is going to be the cross-cultured church. They're going to look like the cross of their Savior. Now, we ended last time with a call to cruciform imitation and a prayer, a prayer for the resurrection power of our Lord to enable us to walk this crucifixion road. What I want to do this morning is walk that road in more detail. I want to ask, what what does cross-culture look like in my life? Last week, we defended it. This week, I want to put it on display by going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, I can only pick a couple things to discuss. It's all over. This idea of cross-centered to cross-culture is all over uh, 1 Corinthians. I could only pick a few things. Let me give you a ba- little bit of background before we jump in. It says that, um, the Corinthian church, if you look and if you've read the letter, you know this, quite possibly the most difficult church that Paul planted. <laughs> I mean, issue after issue in this church. It's like this, this, this pride and worldliness went off like a bomb in the church, and there's shrapnel flying everywhere. And Paul is entering in, in this letter going, what do I do? There are people dividing over who their leaders are. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of uh, Paul. There are people that are using spiritual gifts to exalt themselves rather than build up one another in love. There are people who are permitting all kinds of sexual immorality. Issue after issue. There's a few positive words in the beginning and then it's on after that for Paul. But in it all, what we see is that Paul stays true to his word at the beginning in 1 Corinthians 2.2. 2. I determined, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because in every issue, 
every issue. He brings them back. He reorients them on the cross and he shows them the cross is not just the way of salvation, how sinners get right with a holy God. The cross is also the way of life, how redeemed saints now live in a fallen world with God. So, with the entire letter before us, I chose three things. You'll see, you'll see it in, in your hand out there, and we'll, we'll make our way through it. Each one of those, what we're going to do is look at first where the Corinthians went wrong, how they went wrong, and then we'll look at how Paul reorients them, redirects them with the cross of Christ, and then we'll make some application points for our cross culture here at Mercy Hill. But before we do that, let me pray. No one, Lord, in this room, no one, would buy into what I'm saying if not for your Spirit opening our eyes. No one would want to follow a crucified Savior and pick up their own cross and walk behind Him. Unless you open our eyes. It just isn't what the world values, Jesus. And so I realize that I, I'm fighting not just an uphill battle, but an upside-down battle. And this is not something that I can do. And so I'm praying for your spirit in these moments. Open up our eyes. Help us to see. Silence the false doctrines of our culture. And help us to see that true and lasting joy, ironically, is found first in being conformed to your death. So God, would you be with me? I'm just weak, poor, nothing. You're everything. Be exalted in this room before us, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So. We left off last week in chapter 4. I thought, you know what? It's maybe most natural then to take our first illustration from chapter 5. Because like I said, there are issues all over the place in this letter. Uh, So we could have drawn from anywhere. Let's go to chapter 5. I'm going to try to give us a brief sense of what's going on. And uh, and then we'll we'll go from there. So chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. And then we'll skip down to verse 6 after that. This is Paul now dealing with the Corinthians and how they're handling sin in the camp. Oh, I always forget to say that. If you need a Bible, the ushers are on top of it. Uh, Raise your hands. And if you don't have a Bible, keep it. It's our gift to you. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 2 says this, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. And then verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. We could sum up 
Put it simply, what's happening here in the Corinthian church by just this. They're not taking sin seriously. You got a guy who's sleeping with his mother, okay, and the church is doing nothing about it. But beyond that, they're not merely complacent. It actually would appear that they're they're, they're celebrating it. They're not mourning, they're boasting and arrogant. And Paul is going to go, what is going on with this church? And it's quite possible, quite possible, that this is coming from a corrupt doctrine of grace. You see Paul dealing with this all the time in Romans and things, shall we sin so that grace may abound? Well, the Corinthians, it seems, had a, a, a phrase, a, a kind of a catchphrase that they had in their church that you see in 612 and 1023 of this letter, all things are lawful for me. In other words, grace has opened the door so that I can do whatever I want. Jesus fulfills the law. He takes away sin. I'm free. Doors are open. Whatever I want. All things are lawful for me. They're boasting in this. They are cavalier. They are casual with sin and they don't care. Paul's mention of leaven there if you noticed, in verse 6, connects us to the idea that sin doesn't just kind of locate itself here and fester and maybe destroy one person. It threatens the entire church. It's ready to infuse the entire church. So Paul knows the seriousness of just kind of playing around with sin. Oh, grace! Grace reigns in this community. Therefore... Let's sin about. We're covered. How is Paul going to address this issue? Where is he going to go? Where would you go? This is where he goes. Verse 7. Cleanse out the old leaven, the sin, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, here it is, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So where does he go? Where does he go to try to redirect what's happening in this church, reorient them? He goes to the cross. He said, come with me. You guys don't get it. Come with me up Calvary's road. Come with me and let's look again. Let's look again at the one who died for our sin in our place. And let's see if that way of salvation doesn't somehow affect the way of life in this church. He speaks of the cross and he uses Exodus language to do it. He talks about the Passover lamb and this whole situation that's in Exodus 12, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And you might remember the story. If anything, you've probably seen, what is it, the Pixar movie or whatever that was, Prince of Egypt, I think. And you got this lamb, the final plague, right? And this lamb, unblemished, slain. 
whose blood is put on over the doors of the house of the Israelites so that the children of God are protected from the angel of death. It's where the name Passover kind of comes from, Exodus 12, 13. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. I see the blood, I'll pass over you. But the Egyptians, their children, dead. This blood protects them from the angel of death, but it also becomes kind of their, the, the catalyst for their redemption from the house of slavery. In a cry, a cry rises in Egypt as they find out that all their children, their firstborn, are dead. And they say to Israel, get out of here. And we know they cross the Red Sea into freedom as the newly constituted people of God. That's why Exodus 12 begins saying, this is going to be the first month of the year for you. It all begins with the Passover lamb and his blood. And Paul says, this is what Jesus is for us. He is our Passover. He is our Exodus. And as a result, we're moving kind of backwards through this text here because it's actually kind of how the logic works. As a result, we really are unleavened. You see it there. You are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. In other words, because he's been sacrificed, you are in fact without sin. You remember those words from 1 Corinthians 1.30 we spent all this time on. You are in fact counted righteous, sanctified, and redeemed in Christ, set free from slavery to sin. Because of him, unleavened. That's why the Feast of Unleavened Bread would be seven days after the Passover lamb was slain. He takes away the sins of the world. And then this, now continuing to move backwards, this reality, this gospel reality, grounds his exhortation to them to cleanse out the leaven. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. This is interesting. because we're going, He's saying they're already new. They've been made new because of the Passover lamb. Now cleanse it out, out the sin, so that you may be new. In other words, what he's telling us is, be who you are. God has already made you his people, already made you righteous, already set you apart, already set you free. What are you doing going back to Egypt? and longing for the pots of meat that were there with chains around your hands. Don't you remember the chains? You are free. Be who you are, who God has already made you by His grace. The wonderful thing about the Christian life is that we are not laboring. We're not fighting sin for God's acceptance. We are fighting sin from His acceptance. We have His love. We have His grace. And that, 
that is so much more pleasurable, more pleasing than anything you could get in the house of slavery. Be who you are. That's the exhortation. That's what fuels the children of God to resist sin to the point of shedding blood. There's a greater treasure on the other side even of death. And so we stand against it like Jesus stood on the cross. No, I will not call down the angels. I will not try to set up my kingdom in this world. It's with my Father. The way of salvation, the way of life. Cross-centered, cross-cultured. Now, here at Mercy Hill, what this means for us is we should have no room, no room for unrepentant sin. But this passion for holiness doesn't come from a man-centered legalism. We've got to be holy or God's going to reject us. It comes from a Christ-adoring love. How could I cheat on my husband who has loved me so well? Grace for us doesn't mean what it did for the Corinthians. It doesn't mean living easy. It doesn't mean play with sin because it's no big deal. If that's what it means, we don't know grace. Grace for us rather means what Paul says there in Titus 2, 11 through 14. says this, the grace of God, listen, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. As we wait, so we're not yet in full, uh, we, we don't yet have all that we hope to have and that we will have one day in Christ. As we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Grace doesn't put grapes in our mouths while we kind of lazy river our way down to heaven. It actually puts a sword in our hands and bids us fight in the fields of this war. The world is not yet right side up. We better not be kings. We're servants and we're in a battle. And His grace is given for us to fight. So are you playing with sin? Just kind of tinkering around with it. Plead with you. Pharaoh is not your friend. Egypt is not your home. Gentlemen, what are we doing on those websites when the family's asleep? What are we doing with those white lies we're telling to maybe our bosses to advance our careers? No. Be who you are. Let's step outside the door frame of our lives and look at the blood that's dripping from it. Look at the cross. 
the one who died in your place, the one who died for your sins. Know his love, receive his love, and in that satisfaction, say no to sin and resist. By the power of his resurrection life, put to death the deeds of the body. Resurrection gives us power to walk the crucifixion road. Second example, coming from chapter 6 now. I want to see the cross culture as we deal with conflict. You saw it there as we deal with sin. And now as we deal with conflict, it's kind of going through this letter a little bit. We only had a couple places we could stop, but here's another one. Chapter 6, we'll start in verse 7. Let me give you background, though. Paul's shifting gears to deal with another issue in the church. He's talked about some sexual sin. Now he's talking about conflict. He's talking about what's going on where there's these these people, it seems, are defrauding one another. Members are kind of lying and cheating one another. And then accusations are flying. You did, you did, I did, she said, whatever. And then this is ascending to such a degree that they're now taking one another to court, even before secular judges. And Paul's going, what an embarrassment for the church of God that claims to know the Christ of the cross, demanding their rights, even from one another. It says this in uh, verse 7 and 8, 1 Corinthians 6. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So there's a pride and a worldliness in this church. Not only are they not willing to suffer their rights for another, they're actually exploiting. They're not just after equity in this church. Eye for an eye. They're after I alone, (laughs) me, exploitation. I want to get whatever I can from you. So where is Paul going to go with this church heading in the opposite direction? Far from showing grace, they are getting even more tied down where they're actually breaking the law. Not even equality is in view. But tyranny. Where is he going to go? to reorient them, to help them walk rightly. Read the first part of, or the second part, I'm sorry, of verse 9 there, and we'll read down to verse 11. It goes right to the cross. Do not be deceived, he says. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of His God. 
father of our God. He basically does the exact same thing he did in chapter 5. And this is crazy, because do you see the Corinthians on that list? I mean, they are being thieves. They are being greedy. They are being swindlers. Present tense, Paul is saying, you're defrauding one another. Present tense. And yet he says, the next sentence, such were some of you. Such were. Past tense. How, Paul? Passover lamb, you were washed, you were cleansed, you're forgiven, you are free. There's no chains around these arms. Why are you willingly putting them back in the lock? Be free. Be who you are. You were washed, justified, sanctified in Christ. In other words, with his infinite riches now ours, I mean, we're talking about the one who was ripped off on that cross, the one who was defrauded, the one who took on all our sin and we got all of his riches. He is our plundering of Egypt kind of thing. Where we come out, even though we were in slavery, we come out not just free, but wealthy. And we have all this in the bank now because of Christ. With that now ours, do we not now have enough in the bank to let others rip us off? The way of salvation becomes the way of life, cross-centered, cross-cultured. Why not rather suffer loss? Why not rather be defrauded? He grounds the exhortation to show mercy, to even let others exploit you in the gospel reality. Know Jesus and what he's done. And now let's show people that. So here's the question for us. When one of you has a grievance against one another, or against another, that's uh, verse 1 there of chapter 6. When one of us has a grievance against another, what do we do? What do we do? Is it time to go to court? Is it time to, to, to finger point and to make sure we get what we deserve? You don't want what you deserve. You remember that parable where, where, where the, the, the master frees his slave from like, I don't even know how much, billions of dollars of debt. He goes out to get a couple dollars from his, you know, a friend who owed him money. He's got his hands around his neck, it says. We don't want to be that. We don't want to get what we deserve. We want to look like the grace that was shown to us. We want to represent that to one another. We don't want to see grievances as an aggravation to our day. Conflict is just kind of getting in the way of my pleasure. No, no, no. It's hard. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it's not an aggravation. It's not getting in the way. It's actually an opportunity. It is an opportunity to show Jesus in a way we otherwise might not be able to. We could speak, 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 speak about His grace. And sometimes it's not until they see it in my life, in your life, 
that they will actually hear. We want to look like the cross. Now, uh, let's move to the third. We're looking now at cross-culture and family dynamics. This is going to come from 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9. So we're actually going back to the beginning here. And this isn't a particular issue that Paul's dealing with, but it's actually what sets us up to understand how he's going to deal with every issue in the letter. Okay? And I think it's important because as I, as I was kind of preparing some of this and I realized as we're talking about cross-culture and sin, cross-culture and conflict, I'm setting the bar really high. I'm saying we got to die. This is crazy. This is the Christian life. This is the crucifixion road. And that bar is very high and it's hard. And you're hearing me probably going, oh man, I am not living up to this. What do I do? Perhaps even feeling hopeless. And it's amazing because these opening verses here help us understand how God's going to, by Christ's resurrection power, help us more and more. That's, the, that's why I chose that, uh, that phraseology, because we're growing in this. Help us more and more be cross-cultured. We've got to grow in this, and God, in Christ, by the Spirit, committed to us in His grace help us with this. So let's look. Knowing a little bit about uh, this church already then, a Corinthian church already, and all the problems, it ought to amaze us that Paul opens this letter the way he does in verse 4. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 9 is what we're going to look at here for a moment. It says this, I give thanks. That alone should stagger us. <laughs> I give thanks. Paul is giving thanks for this church shot through with issues. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's note again what Paul says about them. He says, I give thanks always for you, verse 4. He says, in every way you're enriched in all speech and knowledge, verse 5 not lacking in any spiritual gift. Verse 7, they will be guiltless in the day of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. And we're going, are we talking about the same people here? But, but, But Paul, the whole rest of the letter is all the ways they're guilty and struggling and burdening you. We're talking about the same. Is this just, just, just kind of convention in the ancient world? Okay, you got to start with something nice, and then you get to the stuff you really want to deal with. Or is this just him being naive? 
how do we understand the way Paul is seeing the Corinthians at the beginning of this letter, and we assume then throughout the whole thing? We should know the answer by now. The cross of Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ shines through every word of this paragraph. Every word. He begins by noting the grace that was given them in Christ Jesus. That's verse 4. How? Through the cross. He ends by noting their calling into fellowship union with Christ. You've been called into fellowship with Him. And then everything in the middle of this paragraph is all about how He can see this church through the lens of their union with Jesus and what He's done. He sees them in the light of the cross. And so we know in spite of all their serious issues and all the stuff he's going to deal with, he has supreme hope and confidence for them in Christ. All the stuff he's going to deal with, it isn't, I'm fed up with you. It isn't, you guys, you guys are the end of me. This church is going to die. He's not taking pleasure in pointing out every failure. He's saying, live the abundant life that is yours in Christ. Get away from setting up your thrones on this earth and let's walk the crucifixion road together. Oh, it's crazy, but it's filled with joy. Because Jesus walks that road with you. And you know what? This is what this is what's awesome. You see, Paul's able to treat the Corinthians this way because he knows that grace for himself. He doesn't get fed up and throw away the Corinthians because Christ didn't get fed up and kick him out of his plan. Even later in this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, says this, I am, as Paul speaking, the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, 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 verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By grace, I am what I am. He looked at me the worst. I was persecuting the church. And he said, oh, I got a plan for you, and it's good. He said, what kind of grace is this? Jesus, he would say later, I think in Timothy, did this with Paul so that he could then show us the great mercy that is available to all. So the people go, he did that to Paul, he could do that with me. And he's done it, you guys. He's done it. He looks in at our lives and sees more sin than we could ever know in this heart. And he said, I got plans for you. What am I doing in this pulpit? What am I doing? Ask my, what, what, what am I doing here? My wife knows more about me than any of you. All the sin and all this stuff. God bless her heart for sitting in the front row and listening and acting like I'm not a hypocrite. Because I struggle with this. 
but he wants to use us. And he's able to do this because of the cross. The cross takes away the reproach, takes away the sin, so that God can begin to work on our lives and put us right side up in this upside down world. Start to get us looking like him and use us for his purposes. And so you see, knowing that grace, knowing that love, comes to us from the cross, enables us to look like the cross to one another. We see ourselves in verses 4 through 9. We see ourselves there. He will sustain me to the end, guiltless in that day. Me. Just camp out there for a moment. Feel that and then say, now, can I say this? to other people in the church? Or are there just people who just get me fuming? I would never want to say verses 4 through 9 to them. No. They owe me. They hurt me. He's saying, wait a minute. Do you know the one that they are united to? That's the issue. We're talking about the firstborn from the dead. We're talking about the first and the last Adam. You remember these messages? The one who has conquered all union with the resurrected and triumphant Christ. There is nothing your brother or sister cannot do in Christ. Nothing. My little daughter, Bella, right now is going through this phase. I don't know why. (laughs) Where when I hold her close to my face... Hugger, she's. I, I don't know what it is. There's probably some science behind it. But you really do want to squeeze little babies. I don't know. Why. You want to just pinch their cheeks. Maybe it's just my own. I don't know. Nobody seems to agree. So maybe I'm just weird. I have problems. But I want to bring her close. And she's doing this thing now, where, you know, I got moles on my face, and she kind of does this little thing with her finger, and I see it coming in, and just right there. Just poking right on my right on my mole. And she's just like fascinated by the thing that seems off on my face or different or wrong or whatever. And it's like, you know what? We can we can live like that in the church. Ah this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong. Maybe I should just move churches. Or maybe I should just get a new group of friends. Instead of seeing all that's going on, this right evidence of Christ at work in one another. I want that kind of culture. That's a cross culture, you guys. Turn on the TV and you see the opposite. Just slam in one political party in the next and one idea in the next. We want to be, we want to be a culture that hopes for one another because we believe in the risen one who hoped for us, you see. When we were nothing, we were dirt, worm. I think that's what Isaiah, I can't remember the verse. I'm like a worm in the dirt. And he loves us. And he raises us up from that place and seats us with him in the heavenlies. And we have that life in us now to walk the way of the cross. I'm going to end here with a thought from um, the text we looked at actually last week. 
I didn't get to it last week. I wanted to actually close the series with it. I was, I was really inspired. I love the image that comes forth from this text, and I wanted to bring it to us as we close. Last week we were, we were in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 8 through 13. I want to look at verse 4, or I'm sorry, um, chapter 4, verse 9. This is a point that, um, forgive me, I've got some seminary brothers here, so they might know, but it's a point that, that is not immediately evident in the English, but in the Greek, it just shines forth. And I thought, man, this is so cool. I got I got to show people this. I want to focus in on that word spectacle in verse 9. I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world to angels and to men the word spectacle there in the Greek let me see if you can get it theatron it's not a transformer (laughs) that does sound like I just thought theater theater. Paul is saying that the apostles and the church in imitation of them, you remember 416, imitate us, church. You haven't arrived. You're supposed to look like us, and we are a theater to the cosmos, to not just men, but angels to the entire universe. The church is a theater. Now, this immediately made me think of Ephesians 3.10, where Paul says this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is now made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, the glory of God made known, put on display, put in theater for the universe. Every being, everywhere, looking in to the church, what is God like? Who is this God? What is His glory all about? The church, therefore, has a divine playwright, an expansive stage, and a cosmic audience. So, the question is what is this theater playing? You know, what's showing? You go back to the verse, men sentenced to death. That's the spectacle. Men, women, church, looking like the cross with their lives. That message that they proclaim with their lips. When you think evangelism, We often err here. We often think of it as kind of sharing words. I got to go to unbelievers and I got to kind of pass out a tract. And I got to win with my arguments and then maybe they'll come to Christ. You want to know God's evangelistic program for the world? Look to your right and to your left. 
This is it. This is it. A redeemed community, a new humanity, a colony of heaven constituted around the cross of Christ. People ought to look in and see displayed in this theater the cross culture of their Savior. They ought to see the way we deal with sin. Oh, it's not like the world. It's not eat, drink, be merry. They're fighting this stuff because of a greater, more supreme pleasure and treasure. They ought to see how we deal with conflict. What in the world are they doing laying down their rights? This is crazy. They just let people sometimes rip them off. And they're talking about Jesus. They ought to see the way we hope for one another, the way we love and are knit together, even as sinners. We are sinners in this church. But it's the cross that holds us together. And the unbelieving world ought to come in here and say, you know what? I didn't understand. I didn't get it. I didn't buy it when they were giving me all their propositional truths and their arguments. But now that I see this on display in a people, I'm thinking, wow. So we walk the crucifixion road. They ought to come in here and say, Christ, This Christ of theirs must indeed be risen. Or, as Paul says it later, 1 Corinthians 14.25, God is really among you. I want people to come in and say that. So as we draw this to a close here, I want you to imagine the curtains of the theater that is our church opening wide. What are we going to put on display before a watching universe? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's my prayer. That's what they say. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we need a miracle. We need Your Spirit. We so badly don't want to undo with our lives what we tell others with our lips, God. We want to look like the cross we proclaim. And we know that 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 only happens by your power, by your strength. So God, we confess the ways we try to draw glory back for ourselves now. We try to set up thrones now. We try to fight for our rights now. Our best life now. God, we... We want to walk with you. We want to see all that you have done for us, the amazing love you have shown us, and be empowered by your grace to show that to others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What an amazing song to end um, the service in this series with, Lord. That you are enough for us. That is the only way. That is the only way we, are, we would be willing to count all things as loss for the sake of gaining you. That you are enough for us, God. And so I pray by your Spirit, by your grace, show us those things that we need to surrender. Show us your love afresh. Be enough for us, God. Not, not just something that we say, but something that we live, something that we know deep in our bones. You are enough for us. 
thank you for this church. Thank you for the gathering of your saints. We pray, God, you would help us be the theater this week in our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.